And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. And today we are reading... It's been, like, months, I feel like. We said we were going to read this book, and then it never happened. Kaikei. We're reading the novel Kaikei by Vaishnavi Patel. Vaishnavi is the name of one of my old roommates. And I was talking to another one of our roommates who was going to visit Vaishnavi soon. And I was telling her about the book we were reading. And I said Vaishnavi, and we both giggled. Because it was just such a fun little moment. We were just talking about our Vaishnavi. (laughs) I love that. That's so good. We are only reading the first half of Kaikei today. So through chapter 19, stopping at chapter 20, because this is a long one. And there's a lot happening. This is a mythological retelling slash reimagining following Kaikei, who is a kind of Hindu prominent figure in Hindu myths. But she's kind of pushed aside and she's mostly known as being the mother of Rama and the reason that he was exiled and then sort of his story in Hindu mythology is really famous. And Vaishnavi in her author's note at the beginning of the novel talks about the fact that she really wanted to explore the story of Kaikei because it was this was a story that was told often in her home and she always had questions about it and then her mother and her grandmother had like different interpretations as to how and why Kaikei would have made the decision to exile Rama. So now as an adult, Vaishnavi is here kind of reimagining this myth for herself. And I think that one of the things that I love about this book is that she did so much research that she talks about in the author's note, but she says specifically that, and and this really struck a chord with me, that the beauty of myth-making and the beauty of retelling a myth is that the purpose of myth is to change and that everybody who tells it and retells it changes it a little bit. And that this is her interpretation and her kind of blending of certain things from different sources and adding of certain things. So I'm really excited to be able to look at this, I think, very much as its own story, as much as it's also inspired by things. And that Vaishnavi's version of this myth has its own legs to stand on in and out of context. Yeah, I skipped the author's note. (laughs) I read the first half and then I was like, oh, I better read this book because there's a deadline coming. But I wanted to go back and read it now. And I also am interested in like a more classical telling of this myth too, to kind of give context for it. So just to give a brief summary of what we've read up to this point, up to chapter 19, we start with Kaikei as a young girl and her mother has abandoned her. She's 12 years old and her mother abandons her. And so we kind of watch her grow up. She's got seven brothers. One of them is a twin and her father is very distant and cold. And it turns out her mom didn't abandon her. He sent her away. So right away, we're introduced to patriarchy and what it looks like in this place, in this time, in this world. And it's it's oppressive to Kaikei, even as a 12-year-old, because she 
has aspirations of running a kingdom and she also has aspirations of fighting in war and doing all the things that her brothers do because there's seven of them and those are her only companions because her mom isn't there and her father isn't very present in her life either but she recognizes that she'll never earn her father's love because she's a girl and this half of the story is about her growing up and also carving agency for herself and she does that through something Maggie did not tell me about which is very rude because maybe I would have read this book sooner had she done that (laughs) I'm sorry how they done that Kaikei can operate magic Kaikei is a magic person she is called god touched I think Yes, she is God-touched because she can operate magic. And essentially, we learn that her powers start very early on. Early on, she, she finds it from a meditation scroll. And what she can do is she can see her and manipulate her connections to other people. And she follows them and uses it to, like, work her will. I would just add that plot-wise, the beginning of the book follows Kaikei as a child, as Harmony mentioned, but then we also see her grow up and get married and have to negotiate this marriage into something as palatable to her as possible because she's given basically no choice about whether or not she's going to get married. So after eventually kind of having to resign herself to the fact that it was happening, that resignation didn't look like giving up and laying down and rolling over. That resignation looked like, okay, how can I get as much of this as possible to make it as advantageous to me as possible? So where we're at in the book right now, Kaikei is married. She's a queen. She was the third wife, but she was able to broker power for herself by negotiating that if she had the first son of all of the wives, that he would be the heir over the other wives' sons. And from there, it's it's a, a story about her connecting with the other two wives that her husband is married to and connecting with her husband and also feeling I think a really deep sense of civic duty and wanting to empower civic duty and civic responsibility in others who are not just discouraged to not have civic duty and civic responsibility but it's viewed as being sort of sacrilegious to have that civic duty and civic responsibility so right now where we're at at this halfway point in the story they've had children at this point they're watching their children grow up And Kaikei is becoming a very well-loved and well-respected ruler who has just realized that her son Rama is a god. Like, literally, that was the last line of this part. I've read this book before, so Harmony, I wanted to know what your first impressions of it have been up to this point. Why didn't you tell me about the magic girl? The magic girl trope? Because I thought we'd be reading it sooner and you'd get to find out for yourself! It was very hard to get a hold of. This book is a Brooklyn Public Library Book Prize winner, so it's not very available to me. (laughs) My first impressions. So immediately I was enthralled and I wanted to keep going, but my life has been a little crazy, so I wasn't able to like put enough time with my eyes on the page. And that's part of why we're reading this book so late. But yeah, I think it's... I just, I just love a nice feminist tale where we get a girl who, you know, does not, who sees all the bullshit in her society and she's carving agency for herself and she has magic. So (laughs) those are my first impressions. It's a really good book. I'm so glad to hear that you're loving it as much as I am. I had a feeling that I was going to really like this one the second time around. And so far it's been absolutely true. Just like super savoring the story. I think that 
so much of what I love about this is that Kaikei as a character is just surprising and dominant at every turn, and that she's operating within a society that expects her to be submissive, and she just refuses to bow down to that. And I think that you and I spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about operating within or outside of the system. And Kaikei is in a very privileged position to be able to change the system. And therefore, she does as much as she can. And something I so appreciate about her is the fact that even though she's coming from a very privileged background, she is conscious of the fact that other people aren't and tries where she can to make equal space for everybody. I just, I love her. I love her relationships with the other people in her life. I love the messiness of the binding plane, which is her magic system. I just think that this is a really fabulous and really nuanced story that is, I think, just everything that makes a myth retelling like so satisfying to read, to me, at the very least. I agree. I agree. I am now a myth retelling person. Cersei, now Kakai. So we'll see what you're saying about the system. I just want to add. So yes, she's operating within the system, but I also think that she herself simply by refusing to adhere to the culture of what femininity is supposed to be is like kind of breaking the system and then like forcing it, (laughs) like forcing it to work for her. She's just kind of like forcing her way through power in a way that's really radical and refreshing. But I want to get to our syllabus questions. So, first off, we've already talked about this a little bit, but how much agency does our main character have? As Maggie said, we are dealing with a princess and then a queen, and she also has magic powers. So she's got a fair amount of agency that she was born with. But, ooh, I wanted to add, too, as Maggie was talking about her consciousness, One of the things we see through this book is Kaikei gaining consciousness via her life experiences, via listening and learning. And that's true with magic, too. These are all, and really power in general, everything that Kaikei has is something that she has worked for and that she has gotten via putting in a lot of labor and time and by paying attention. Like, she's learning. We see her learn throughout this book in a way that I don't know that we usually get with novels. Do you have anything to add about Kaikei's agency? I would say that going off of that, regardless of the station that she was born in, she wasn't necessarily afforded as much agency as one would with those kind of titles and status in the 21st century, for example. And it is that learning process that gives her so much agency combined with, as Harmony saying, her willingness to brute force her way through the system. And I think that some of that brute force ability comes from her place of privilege because she has these titles and she has status to back up her requests. But then she shares those wins with other women who wouldn't have necessarily had that ability to begin with. So not only is Kaikei increasing her own agency throughout the novel, but I think she also has, in ways big and small, positive effects on the agency of other women throughout the novel, which is just really wonderful. But I think that for me, the place that impresses me the most with the agency is the nuance in which she's able to read situations when she is doing that listening and learning. As a teenager, before she gets married, but after her mother leaves, 
she had very much dismissed the idea of what a woman's role should be in the palace and the work that women were supposed to do in her status. And it was coming in her mind from a radical place of being like, I want to be a warrior. You know, she goes on to be the charioteer for her husband, the king later. You know, she wants to be the person with the sword and the weapons. She's gotten her brothers to kind of teach her these, this warcraft on the side. And it's not until she really becomes close with her mother's primary attendant that she's able to see and wield the power that can be afforded to one in her station as well. And understand that agency, I think, can be more complicated than it seems on the surface and that there can be power to have in a lot of places in the world if you're able to sort of grip it and see And I think that that's a lot of what she learns is how to balance that and how to kind of grip every situation and see what will come of it. It's just so awesome. It's so good. I agree. I think it's important to note, too, that Kaikei, even though she had aspirations to fight like the men in her family did, when she goes to war, she realizes that she does not like it at all. And so I think that what we're seeing here is that Kaikei wants power. And so she associates that with the things that her brothers are going to have. You know, her twin is going to rule a country or a kingdom, I guess, a kingdom. <laughs> he's going to rule a kingdom and, you know, he's also going to go to war. And these are things that men do because they have the power. And so, yeah, like Maggie is saying, but believe that her mother's attendant is named Mantra. She teaches her these other ways to have power via the things that is already given which is a privileged birth and yeah i don't know i just think that's important the fact that like kaikei throughout this book unabashedly wants power and we could see that as something that leads to her downfall because we know going in from the author's note we know that her story is one where she is known for killing her stepson rama but right now, halfway through the book, I'm like really digging that. I'm like, yeah, I want power. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I can use this power well. But like, yes, I am attracted to power. <laughs> yeah, it's just very like, it's I think a really refreshing subversion as well. Because I think for a long time, in like the aughts and early 2010s, there was a very formulaic maybe feminist version of re of retellings or even just like a lot of feminist stories where to have power meant to wield the very specific kind of power that we typically think of men holding in this society and Kaikei starts to go down that path and then decides that it's not for her and I think that it's like so refreshing to see a female character a woman decide I can have power and be true to myself and the things that I like too and that the things that I've typically associated with power aren't actually the end-all be-all in terms of, of having power. So what does this look like and what do I get to invent for myself and then my people is, I think, a really central question to the novel. And it's just really interesting. Yeah, it's it's really well crafted. I think that sometimes with retellings, I can struggle with them because myths are often very moralistic and very prescriptionary. Because that's like the purpose of mythology. It's not a bad thing. But when you're doing a retelling, I think sometimes it can feel like it's following that same exact kind of thread. And sometimes that works for me and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not super familiar with the source material that Kakei is drawing upon. But I think that because Vaishnavi Patel 
was so open about the fact that she was very specifically pulling and mishing and mashing from the two or three kind of big source materials for this myth and like taking liberties in her own place and really trying to build something for herself for this myth. We've ended up with like a very, very nuanced character who's really wrestling, I think, with very relatable questions. And they're not relatable because they speak to me in the 21st century. They're relatable because I think that they can speak to anybody who's kind of femme presenting living as a woman throughout history, you know? And I really appreciate that. It's handled with a lot of nuance and a lot of care. It's not just like, okay, this one set path is going to fix it all. Okay, so along those lines, let's talk a little bit about what Kaikei does with that power. Our next syllabus question is, do they, the main character, gain agency by exerting power or force over others? And this is a little bit complicated because the answer is yes with Kaikei. Kaikei is exerting her power to manipulate ties over others. Um, And I guess, I don't know, I want to talk to you a little bit about, because she does learn some moralistic codes for that use, But I want to talk to you a little bit about the ethics of that, like, especially because I guess our our mundane equivalent would just be manipulation, right? Which is often associated with things like abuse and these big tactics, but it's also a tool that is really common for femme people when, or just anyone, right? When you're like trying to figure out your, how, how you're perceived, right? Like there is manipulation in the workforce that isn't necessarily an abusive manipulation right like you're using your image in a way that gets you results so yeah I I guess I want to talk about that icky grayness these icky words like manipulation with you Maggie I'm so glad you brought this up because this was part of the reason that I knew that this would be a really interesting novel for us to converse about. And I think I have actually different feelings about this specific aspect of the book than I did the first time around. Because the first time around, I think that I had a little bit more of a knee-jerk, like, oh, good God, this magic system is entirely manipulation. But I think the second time around, I'm really seeing all of the nuances that are embedded into that. And I think, I mean, it's only been like three years since I first read this novel, but I think that I also have more grace and forgiveness for myself and others for the learning process because I think that there's two sort of threads pardon my terrible pun to follow here the first thread I think is the thread of Kaikei navigating power in general which is that when she first discovers the binding plane she largely uses the power in kind of selfish ways right she's trying to get out of this marriage she's trying to figure out how she can keep her life to the way that she wants to live it And the way that she wants to live it is a life of freedom, freedom that men have, but not necessarily thinking about extending that influence to anybody else, right? Which totally makes sense. She's a teenager while all of this is happening, right? So like she's going through this learning process. And then she goes through that kind of more moralistic process where she realizes, I think, both the power that she can actually wield to to do good for more than just herself but then also the damage that she can do to others with this power when she sees for the first time the consequences when she pushes somebody's emotional self too far. And then the second thread to follow here is the idea of manipulation. But is what Keke doing manipulation or is the binding plane more of a space where emotional empathy is made real, right? Because she doesn't have, it's, it's all about her the strength of her connection with somebody. 
In a lot of ways, it's all about how well she knows them. She can pull on threads and manipulate people who she doesn't know very well. And she does occasionally, but her power there is very limited because there's no strength of connection, right? So I think to me, the interesting thing about the binding plane is that it's all about relationship building and kind of making that relationship building just a very tangible thing that she can see and act upon. But in many ways, her power is one that we all excise and exercise all the time by understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the people that we're talking to, understanding the motivations of the people that we're talking to. And I think most importantly, understanding what the people we're talking to will do for us if asked correctly, because they care about us. And that's what we all do for the people that we love, right? And I think that saying it like that can make it sound kind of cold and calculated. And sometimes that's how it comes off in the book. But I think really her magic and the power of the binding plane is one of understanding human emotion, understanding human relationships, and being able to utilize that. And as much as that can be cold and calculating, oftentimes in the novel and oftentimes in real life, that means dealing with somebody with more compassion and more empathy and having a deeper understanding for them. So I think that those are my general thoughts on the sort of two different threads in my mind that the magic system brings up for me. Yeah, I like that we get to see her fuck up a lot first before she develops any sort of moral code about it. And I think it's important too to note that this power is limited. One of her early experiences using it, she badgers a servant friend of hers to do something and the cord ends up snapping, and their relationship is forever damaged. And there are other multiple instances as she's learning how to use the plane appropriately, effectively, and ethically, where she is unable to persuade somebody. But I think, I don't know, I just appreciate seeing that. I appreciate seeing a teenager dealing with this stuff, because when we're talking about things like abuse or when we're talking about something like manipulation, right? Everything has the potential to go too far and we are all capable of making, of doing harmful things. And part of wrecking, part of like curing that as a society in the world is recognizing that we're all capable of doing harmful things. And therefore we're capable of also learning from our mistakes. Yeah. So I don't know. I think to that it, it just it reminds me a little bit of networking or schmoozing which i guess is what she's literally doing when she's in the palace because kaike builds up networks of people for herself in order to gain more social power and i think so many of us have a distaste for that because anything to do with power is icky but as i'm seeing from this book like it doesn't always have to be all that bad like we could just recognize that it's okay for people to have a lot of talent or have a lot of capital as long as they're using it all right and I don't mean capital like money capital but I guess like having a lot of something having a lot of magic or a lot of personality or a lot of charm is all all right but also these things afford you more power and it's not wrong to want power it's wrong to exert that power over other people and also like in a just society we all are empowered we all have power you know? All right. So my next syllabus question, unless you have anything else you want to say. I think that there's a really interesting conversation happening here between the magic and social capital, because I think another key point of the novel is that, as Harmony mentioned, she fucks up young, right? Like she learns the right lesson at the right time. 
And that's crucial for this book. I think that there is almost an even darker side to this novel and a darker side to this power where somebody could could have learned this magic, not learned that lesson until too late and like not have developed that moral code, right? So I think that that's also an interesting conversation about power is that like, because power isn't automatically good and you're eventually going to make a mistake with it, when and how and how you learn from that can be really influential to your overall relationship with that power, right? But then also she even sees the potential in the power after conversations that she stops ha- starts having with Mandara at the very beginning of the book, because Mandara teaches her about the power of social capital to begin with, when they're talking about how to arrange rooms and how to appease this conquered king who they don't want to go back to war with them. And Kaikei thinks of all of this as really being her father's problem. And then Manthara is like, oh, no, no, you have a lot of power and influence here, right? So I think that that's also really crucial to sort of the progression of the novel in a way that I really appreciate. But then the other thing is that the other key to this is that Kaikei's power isn't all powerful and it has its own limitations. Because as Harmony mentioned, she can break these threads and she can't irreparably damage her relationships with people. And the less she knows somebody, the less effective her power is. So while she has extra power and extra magic to be working with, it's also not unconditional, all powerful, I don't know, max HP, totally (laughs) busted boss, you know? And I think that that limitation is also a really important part of how Kaikei develops as a character, but also in terms of how we talk about power in general, because it also, I think, makes her see the limits of other people's power in the book, even if it's not magical. Whereas before, when she was younger, she thought of those powers as being all reaching forever kind of set in stone things. Yes. Okay. So my next question is, does the plot resolve by a hurting hierarchy or subverting it? We don't know how the plot resolves. <laughs> so I guess we'll stick, skip that one. What can we take from this book into our own lives? We're almost at 30 minutes, and I, I feel like I'm okay with this question. Are you ready for this question yet? Sure, we can talk about this question. Okay, well, I think that throughout this podcast, you all have seen my philosophical journey. <laughs> into like from progressive liberal into actual anarchist and that makes up a big part of my life and like how I operate on this world or how I try to operate I guess in terms of like where I'm putting my labor and how I'm putting like how I'm using my labor to affect the world so I think for me I've gone in a much more selfless direction because kind of like Kaikei, I'm I'm 28, which is where around where Kaikei is now in the novel as we're done reading it, right? Like I went through my teenage phase where I was all about me, 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 and now I'm like looking to give back to the world, um, and also looking to where I can do the most good and like with the most influence. And I think that reading this book so far, I don't know if it's going to end like this because we already know that she kills her stepson. <laughs> But reading this book, she doesn't kill him. She exiles him. And then he goes on to do world changing things that she gets like kind of blamed for because she's the person who exiles him. Anyways, continue. I thought she killed him. I don't think so. I think she just exiles him and then things happen. She doesn't try to have him killed? 
Well, I don't want to spoil it, but like the the big thing that happens in like the central question in the author's note is the fact that she exiles him and the things that he does after that, before he dies, but after he's exiled are largely blamed on her because of this. Like, would the world have been different if she hadn't exiled him, basically? I see. I see. Okay. I thought that she was trying to have her stepson killed. That's what I've been operating under. Who knows? I apologize for the mistake. (laughs) But anyway, I think what I'm taking from this book is this unabashedness, this unabashed quest for power and like how that's okay, because I've been reevaluating my past few, these past few years, my relationship with ambition because of COVID, because the type of ambitions that I had before no longer align with my philosophical outlook. And I think that I'm going to shoot more for shining because I think that as as people who are like femme presenting, especially, we're told to dole our shine, right? And sometimes we have to. Sometimes we're in the workplace and our shine is too bright and men come along and they're like, you need to lessen your shine because it makes me feel threatened. Totally not speaking from personal experience or anything. Um, <laughs> I still get mad about it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm gonna just let myself shine. Full, full frontal, full frontal nude shining, I guess. And <laughs> Maggie's face. If only this uh, was a video podcast. And I'm also going to be okay with the fact that I like having influence over things and I don't have to be a control freak about it, but I do really like seeking opportunities to have the greatest influence because I think I have good ideas. I think for me, what I'm taking from this story is that. We didn't have a huge chance to talk about it so far, and that's not a problem. But one of the most influential things for me that's really stuck out for me on this reread is Kaikei's relationship with the other wives and the women's council that they create together. And the women's council that starts off being a nobility thing, and then they quickly realize that the greatest need is with other castes and other classes. So they open it up to everyone. And the power that they're able to create for themselves, and most importantly, for the other women who don't have their status and their titles. And I think that it's just such a beautiful reminder of the fact that being able to trust one another and rely on one another is one of the best ways to create change in the world, because there is so much power in numbers. And that sometimes all it really takes is one person kind of being like, let's just try this and kind of persevere about it. Because one of the things about the Women's Council is that because it's basically going against what the sages are sort of preaching as being religious and correct in terms of a woman's role, a lot of the women are really scared to come to the queens to begin with. And they're scared of the implications of all of this. But they persist and they keep on going and they're able to show that change happens. And slowly they're able to build trust in those other communities uh, and bring them all together. And I think, I don't know, it's just a really powerful reminder that like, while every movement needs a leader, you don't necessarily have to be that leader to make the change. And that there's big power in giving your trust to somebody as well. I think that this book and that specific aspect of this book has a a lot to do with collectivism and that power of solidarity that has just really especially struck me reading this the second time. Snap, 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 snaps. 
Yeah, I think it's also really cool that the Women's Council starts up simply because the Queen's... Because originally Kaikei, when she first moves to the kingdom, she doesn't have a great relationship with the Queen's because she is still a teenager and she's still, like, figuring her shit out and is really depressed that she had to leave her homeland. But developing a relationship with the Queen, simply, like, sewing or embroidering or whatever it is they're doing, they're doing some sort of womanly art, um... Together and, like, talking about the problems, just the three of them, is what attracts other women to start coming to those meetings. They help one woman and then multiple women hear about it. And then they call them the... It's not the Women's Council to begin with. They don't have a name at first, but then they become the Women's Council relatively quickly. There's also another part to this, which is that the Women's Council is also influenced by the fact that Kaikei happens upon this story of one of the servants who works in the kitchen who is being treated poorly because she's a bastard of a noble person. And so people are really taking advantage of all of this. And Kaikei decides not just to intervene on this girl's behalf, but to actually go down into the kitchen and see how things are going and really understand the differences in social status and kind of class that are happening. So there's two sort of things happening is that there's the trust that's built up between the three queens, but there's also the fact that Kaikei basically actually got up off her butt and went to do something that could have risked her reputation to do and put herself on the line as well in order to make this girl's life better and then is actually successful at it. So it takes like these two acts coming together in pretty harmony to like create the success of the Women's Council. And I think that that's also really important is that it's not just these three queens kind of sitting on their high horses being like, tell us your problems, peasants, you know, like it's very rooted in the fact that they're aware that their problems are different than their people's. And that they're willing to learn and adapt their solutions to what actually works for the people who are having the issues. But the Women's Council is what they ended up with. But the part of the back and forth was that they were worried if they used the word council, that they'd be viewed as being too political and like too close to what the men were up to. And ultimately, they decided kind of, fuck it, that is what we're up to, right? Like, we're here because women don't have a voice in this court. And we are the voice of women in this court. So it's a real council. Beautiful. All right. My last question is, does this book offer any prescriptions for operating in the larger world? I think it does. I think it tells us to not badger people and not be a dick. And when we have power, let's make it altruistic. Let's make sure that if we have influence, it, we're using it to help people and better the world. Yeah, I think that a lot of the prescription in this novel is like, listen and learn. That is a really worthy time and pursuit and you can take action as a result of that you know but like your perception of the world and your thoughts about the world aren't the only ones but I think that as part of that making mistakes is okay as long as you learn from them right like there is a level of which you can do all of the listening and learning you want you're still gonna mess it up eventually you have to come out of that understanding what went wrong and why so that you can avoid it and it's okay to make mistakes. I mean, I don't know that the novel is telling us that, but just in general, it's okay. We're going to make mistakes. We're human. And the point is to learn from them. And it's all going to be all right. It is all going to be all right. Is that the last of our syllabus questions? That is the last of our questions. Is there anything else you want to add about this novel so far? 
No, I'm just excited to read the second half. Me too. I've been waiting. It's been like a couple of days since I picked it up because I didn't want to go above what we were reading because this is the first time for me and everything tends to get kind of pushed together in terms of my memory. So yeah, next week, I guess we're, and the week after next, we are reading the second half of this novel. Yes, indeed. Do you want to tell the people what you're reading right now outside of this? Um, What I'm reading right now is a bunch of academic articles on critical pedagogical love. And I just finished The Witches of Moonshine Manor, which is like a fabulous book about some Golden Girls style witches, except they're in their 80s, who have to save their manor and... It's just wonderful and very diverse for a book that stars women all in their 80s. It's funny and fantastic. So it's a very fun fluff read. I dig it. I dig it. I'm not reading anything densely academic right now. My work currently is about food history, which is fun, but isn't quite as isn't quite as academic as all that. But in my personal life, I'm reading We Unleashed the Merciless Storm by Taylor K. Mejia. And The Atlas Paradox by Olive E. Blake. Yeah, the audiobook just dropped on this one. I'm like halfway through. It's a wild time. Wait, is this the third book? It's the second book. Okay, okay. Is that all folks? I think it might be all folks. That is all folks. I am ready. Good good night. Goodbye. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.